0: Good day, First Universalist. I think it's sweating up here dancing and thinking and praying and I told Justin I might bring a little black church with me so it looks like we had a little party this morning. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you this morning and I thank Justin and the ministerial team and the board and all of you for that invitation. Six months ago, I, I moved to Minneapolis. And um, I love what this move has done. I was a fan of Garrison Keillor for years. And I was always this little anomaly, this black person driving through the hood with my windows down listening to Garrison Keillor. <laughs> and I pull up to the corner, and brothers look at me like, what the hell? What? I said, you should check it out. Brother can preach. A lot of things um, are going to happen. It's, uh, coming to Minneapolis has given me new energy and a, a new consciousness and a new awareness of who and what I might become in this amazing, beautiful, complex state. I hadn't moved in 26 years and I'm looking forward to the yet another incarnation of self I received a gift from my partner last week, a very large hat, a large fairy hat with wings and hats. (laughs) And this fairy hat is for me to wear, I guess, when I go deer hunting or (laughs) other such things. But I'm very interested in uh, that ice house thing. So I'm thinking about how to really, how to pimp that out and really have a great ice house out there. So. it'll happen, Justin, it's a possibility. You know. I love what is becoming to me, what is becoming of me since I've moved here six months ago. My, my notions of time and space have changed also dramatically, uh, giving the scale of this city is much smaller than I'm used to, and it's given me opportunities that I wouldn't have to rub elbows with people of different cultures and backgrounds that were not previously available to me. Since I moved to Minneapolis six months ago, my body and my family, my family, can have a sense of place that is much less constricted confined or controlled or coded as we were in our previous city. Moving has awakened me to myself and my surroundings in new ways that reframe my identity and demand my constant curiosity. In many ways, this is the typical story of movement, of moving. Embodied bodies moving to and from is the story of the United States. The story of America is movement. Whether they're voluntary bodies moving from Europe to America or involuntary bodies moving from the Caribbean to America, this is a country forged by movement. Movement along the Trail of Tears or movement through the Atlantic Middle Passage. Movement of bodies is our story, whether it's immigration, migration, or enslavement. My family moved during the turn of the last century from Florida and South Carolina to Pennsylvania and to Maryland. And they move for a new beginning, a new type of life. And they move so that the strength of their bodies, the power of their intellect, and the industriousness of their skill might give them better opportunities. Now, many of my favorite writers talk about movement like this. Richard Wright, the humanist African-American literary giant who wrote Native Son and Black Boy talks about movement. In an essay he says, I was leaving the South to fling myself into the unknown. I was taking a part of the South to transplant an alien soil to see if it could grow differently. If it could drink of new and cool rains, bend in strange winds, respond to the warmth of another sun, and perhaps even bloom. James Baldwin, another literary giant who left the United States and lived in France for much of his life to write, he says that voyagers discover that the world can never be larger than the person that is in the world. But it is impossible to foresee this, it is impossible to be warned. In Lorraine Hansberry's epic play, Raisin in the Sun, she brilliantly captures the the angst and the joy surrounding the potential movement of a black family from one neighborhood to the other. She talks about this as a move that would be so compelling and so complex that it could cause the family harm and good movement. Yet the rub in the context of this bodily promise and potential is that movement is often laced with pitfalls for African Americans. While movement has provided opportunities that same movement could also come with certain restrictions and danger. The movement of black bodies has always been fraught with these complexities. Black bodies have been deemed as hyperphysical. Hyperphysical. Black bodies move within time and space in our country, deeply noticed. Therefore, where they are and how they show up must be managed. Black bodies moving through time and space within the context of this country are always noticed. There is a, uh, how many of you like social experiments? There are lots of them on the internet. Ever take part in any of them? Hmm. Hmm. All right. There's a social experiment that I like to take part in. When I visit UU churches, especially when I'm out of town, usually when I go with a white friend, we don't walk in together. I say, you walk in alone. I'll walk in alone. Then we make a friendly wager, as to who will get greeted by how many people and how much of a time limit. I usually win the wager. Because my black body is deeply noticed, hers is not. Mine is deeply noticed. My presence sets off almost like those alarms that go off in your house, like when you walk up to a door in a cabin and the bright lights come on, all of a sudden, you see who's at the door. My body, my presence, sends off triggers and sensors and all kinds of alarms that are deeply rooted in the movement of my body in the context of time and space in these churches. Often, it's very entertaining. Now, many would say that since a black body occupies the White House with his black wife and his black children and his black mother-in-law and various black friends that come to barbecue, (laughs) that we have resolved this since the post-racial age is upon us. The post-racial age is here. But friends, here is my dilemma. While we have moved forward in many, many ways, no doubt, we have done so without challenging, however, the lexicon or the grammar or the language of our conversation about race. In many ways, our public conversations are still laced with and embedded by and hamstrung by ideological perceptions that are centuries old. The fundamental ways that black bodies are perceived have not been troubled by this so-called post-racial progress. We cannot forget, however, about those ideological dangers and fears. We cannot forget about those elements of our collective life. We cannot forget that they continue to matter. Now, our realities in this country and at this very moment I believe are outlined in two extreme poles that can be illustrated by the hauntingly beautiful melodic sound of Nina Simone. Anyone know Nina Simone? Okay, okay. Old folks, all right. Boomers, boomers. She just wonderfully presents this in two songs, one written in nineteen sixty-four and the other written in 1968. Now her original language should be remembered because it expresses the angst and the anger and the uncertainty that motivated this deep animosity that she had about how black bodies are perceived and treated in the United States. And the lyrics remind us of one of these polls. In 64, she says at the end of this famous song, you do not have to live next to me, just give me equality. Everybody knows about Mississippi. Everybody knows about Alabama. Goddamn Mississippi. That's one pole. But in 1968, she represents the other pole in a lyric of hopefulness. Now in 1968, I was 10 years old, I had just gotten an afro, I had a beret, a leather jacket, I thought I was Huey Newton, (laughs) and Martin Luther King and Sojourner Truth all rolled up into one. And I would pick out my little afro every day singing this lyric from Nina Simone. To be young, gifted, and black, we must begin to tell our story. There's a world waiting for me, and it's the quest that's just begun. Every day. I'm ready now. We black bodies exist between these two realities, these two poles, these two songs, these two lyrics, these two four-year gaps in Nina Simone's legacy of her lyrics. We live between this deep pessimism about this country's ability to move forward and this amazing aesthetic of optimism and the beauty and the power and the potentiality of blackness. We move between these poles. I move between these poles every single day of my life, and sometimes I am exhausted moving back and forth when much is not really changing. I remember when, when all of the sudden, during the Trayvon Martin case, all of these black bodies, intellectual black bodies, Cornel West, Michael Eric Dyson, et cetera, et cetera, entertainers, politicians, activists, everybody was putting on a hoodie and going on TV. I even did it one day. I went to my CPE class with a hoodie on to express the solidarity with Trayvon Martin. But after I thought about it, I realized that it was a misrepresentation of what that case was really about. I don't normally wear a hoodie, but I know I can be dressed in my finest clothing and in the middle of the and in the evening walking down the street, white people walk to the other side of the street. I'm not wearing a hoodie. I don't wear a hoodie, but there are times that I am on the elevator at work and people are pushing themselves up against the control panel for fear of contact with me. What took place with Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and the thousands of others is connected to the perception of black bodies in time and space. And this is not new. This is not new. The underlying perception of black bodies as threats is not new. An American desire to make certain that black bodies occupy time and space in ways that are comfortable, easily predictable, ways that render these bodies docile and easily molded and controlled is not new. I can prove this is not new with two examples. First example is Henry Box Brown, 1815 to 1879 an enslaved African in Virginia, who mailed himself, who put himself in a box that traveled for over six days from Virginia to the home of an abolitionist in Philadelphia where he got out of the box and was free. Slavery ended for him as he moved his black body across geography across time and space. He went from a slave state to a free state. But what comes out of this event that became highly publicized about Henry Box Brown was the fugitive slave laws. That said, that runaway slaves have to be taken back to their owners. This is property that is owned, and it must be returned. Second example, Dred Scott with Minnesota Connections. 1795 to 1858, he lived as a slave in a variety of locations with his owner and he argued that the fact that he would be in a free state made him free. He said, I'm not a slave when I'm in a free state. It went all the way to Supreme Court as you know, and it was decided that his freedom was not real. The Chief Justice said that, and I quote, the framers of the Constitution decided that the black man had no rights that white man was bound to respect and the Negro for his own good should and must be reduced to property and as such be subject to the property laws like any article, end quote. Chief Justice. Black bodies occupy time and space in certain ways that are not meant to pose a threat. And when they are out of place, there are certain ways that they should be managed. I would argue that the ways in which the slave codes frame black bodies informed in unconscious ways what undergirded The thinking of every single police brutality case in this country. We have seen this and while these police have probably not been conscious of the historical nature of these laws, they still influence their thinking. There is a context and a perception of black bodies as threats that's thrived and flourished in the public discourse. My family entered the United States, as it was, in the mid-1700s. In the mid-1700s. And there in South Carolina in 1712, the Black Codes there restricted the movements of enslaved Africans. And it said, slaves are not permitted to leave the owner's property unless accompanied by a white person. If a slave leaves an owner's property without permission, here's the catch. Every white person has permission to chastise such slaves. Uh, hello? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a neighborhood watch guy. Yeah, yeah, there have been some uh, break-ins in the neighborhood. There's this guy who looks really out of place. He's walking around in the rain. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm going to follow him. The best address I can give. Yeah, he's still walking around here. Yes, he's wearing a hoodie. He just doesn't look right. Black bodies out of place. If a slave leaves the owner's property without permission, every white person has permission to chastise such slaves. Woo, Can you pull over, step out of the car, please? Where are you going? Is this your car? License and registration. Do you know someone who lives around here? What are you doing in this neighborhood? Are you sure you're in the right place? If a slave leaves an owner's property without permission, every white person has permission to chastise such slaves, unconsciously policing black bodies out of place, managing them. Now, as a religious humanist and a cultural Christian and a lover of people and a lover of humanity, I always thought that my fellow Unitarian Universalists, in particular, might be in a great position to wrestle with these issues in fundamentally helpful and thoughtful ways. After all, we're rationally spirited people who have high aspirations for the human potential, for us to act and behave ethically. But too often, I hear this. Uh, Karen, when I, I see you, I, I don't see a black person. I just see a human being. I don't see race. Traditional ways of identifying black bodies in the United States makes them hyper-visible. They are always identified, needing to be monitored, Karen. but. When I see you, I don't, I don't see color. I, I, I just see a person, a human being. Now, I understand the intent behind that comment. I've understood it all my life. I smile usually. <laughs> not in Wave Boys, just not in Wave. But I understand that there's a certain naivete about that comment and that suggestion that you not see. But this kind of comment creates an ethical posture towards the world that renders me invisible. This challenge is not to get rid of difference, not to act like it doesn't exist, but to embrace the reality that the integrity of life comes in a variety of colors, cultures, and contours. When I see you, Karen, I don't see a black person. I see a human being. We render it invisible. And this is the challenge to humanists and universalists and Christians and Jews and Muslims. It's a challenge to the entire world. How do we do things differently? How do we think about ethics differently? How do we struggle for the integrity of life? How do we do this in a world that has been marred and marked by failure? Complete failure. Now, do we move through the world recognizing that our efforts come up short? If we do, how do we maintain integrity of life with a reasonable optimism? A reasonable optimism with this horrific history. How can we recognize but not be crippled by the potential for failure? Recognize but not be crippled by the potential for failure. This ethical posture requires the embodied bodies are going to be understood and perceived in many ways. And they're not always going to be reasonable. There is nothing reasonable about the lynching of my grandfather's best friend while he's hiding in the bushes, watching his best friend be lynched because it was extra if he caught a black man coming back from World War I with a uniform on to lynch him. It wasn't reasonable for him to tell me that story about his return to America from France. It is not reasonable. It is not reasonable. To think about the lynchings of black circus workers in Duluth, Minnesota. Nothing reasonable about these forms of violence. So how do we move through the world when bodies are treated in not always the most humane and reasonable manner? How do we do it? How do we move with the knowledge that there's almost an ontological imprint of suspicion about some bodies and not others, an ontological imprint of suspicion. Now I believe this is where we see that geography really matters. Geography really matters. Physical and intellectual geographies matter and there are three people who I believe can help us come up with an alternate ethical model. Three people. I lived in Boston for a long time and uh, for many years, and there Walden Pond was a favorite place for me. It became one of my favorite places, and in the gift shop there, there there's a t-shirt, and the t-shirt said, what would Thoreau do? (laughs) Right next to all the lollipops and the trinkets that say, simplicity, 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 live deliberately, simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. (laughs) What would Thoreau do? This was a great t-shirt, and I'm a big fan. And if we really read Walden, read it carefully, we can, he can challenge us in some profound ways. The appreciation for the ordinariness of life, not just an ordinariness of what you think and do, but the ordinariness that what experiences. In Walden, He pushes us to draw as much out of life as we possibly can, the marrow of life, because in the end, you want to know that you've truly, in fact, lived. This is important to get us to slow down enough in our public sphere to wrestle with the nature of these kinds of conversations I'm raising today. We do not just wrestle with ideas, but ideas are lodged in movement of bodies that are born, age, and die. And what Thoreau challenged ourselves to do is not simply slow down to notice the flowers blooming or to do good, but to slow down to be good, to be good. He argues that he is not impressed by someone who gives him a little something to eat or helps him get out of a jam. What is important to him is being good. Now doing good got George Zimmerman arrested, but it doesn't solve the problem. Doing good allows us to maneuver to create greater spaces for meaning, greater spaces for the practice of freedom within the context of troubled relationships. But being good gives us an impetus to rethink these structures that do harm to us and our humanity. Being good makes us use imaginative constructs to maneuver in the world and allows us to think outside the box to the world of what-ifs. I'm a people of what-ifs. I'm a descendant of what-ifs and how cans. This is what Thoreau pushes us to do. Don't simply do good, be good. It's so much more significant and challenging. Now the second person that I think can help us also lived in Massachusetts for some time and that, as you heard earlier, was the great humanist Frederick Douglass. Of particular interest to me in his narrative, which many of you read in middle school, and if you haven't, go back and read it again. Of particular interest to me is the conversation that he has with the overseer named Covey. Covey was a specialist in breaking people. He was a specialist in breaking down Africans who still had a spirit of their humanity. And owners sent people specially to Covey to break them, and Douglas was sent. He had a reputation for helping people comply. He wanted Douglas to know that he is not only a slave in name, but also a slave in being, and that was his goal. In his autobiography, he talks about this. He says that this belittling and degradation every minute of the day, day in and day out, was starting to wear on him. He was reaching a point with his body, mind, and spirit that he was starting to think about himself as a slave. Covey was winning until one episode that took place in the barn. You know, stuff happens in barns. Got real in the barn. Frederick Douglass turned around and grabbed that whip, and despite the pure physical and emotional power that Covey had on him, he struck out and claimed his humanity and determined under what circumstances at least he would die. (laughs) He decides he's going to fight. He's going to fight back, and whatever comes, comes, but he's going to be the determinant of his future. And after the fight... I mean, he whoops Covey. After the fight, Covey is humble and confused. But Douglas realizes in his narrative that his embodied body, his physical existence has deep meaning and it connects to the life of ideas in profound ways as he recognizes that he has a right to time and space. Covey does not get to determine this. This nature of enslavement does not get to determine this, but Frederick Douglass alone gets to determine how he occupies space and how he's going to die. Now the same lesson hits home with the final person I want to lift up this morning, and that is with Harriet Tubman. (laughs) More than anyone, She understood the significance of geography. She understood that the very breath of life itself revolved around our ability to claim a space. This space is mine. I determine what I do in this space. I determine what I do not do in this space. And it seems that all three of these thinkers give us ethical models of moving through the world. They show us that being good human beings can allow us to wrestle wrestle with the hard questions and the ordinariness of life. They remind us that we need to see clearly, without hesitation, the tragic nature of life without flinching, without flinching. They show us that we must still continue to hope for something better. They show us that we must not look away, ignore, or passively sigh with resignation when we see the next Michael Brown and the next Trayvon Martin or the next Rakeisha McBride. I have no interest investing my energy or worrying about what happens to those who have picnics at lynchings, or the Coveys who beat human spirits, or the Zimmermans or the Wilsons that kill black bodies. Instead, we must determine to be good and fight back with our humanity laid bare in uncompromising ethical postures as we honor those whose lives have been lost and whose lives will continue to be lost because our country is not everything that it ought to be. But here's the good news. It still has the potential to be better than it is it still has the potential to be better than it is. It still has the potential to be more than what we are individually. It has potential to be more because we must approach these opportunities to lay our humanity bare with a high degree of humility and compassion so that we can recognize that our lives are fraught with, with great opportunities for human flourishing. Harriet Tubman understood flourishing. Thoreau understood. Douglas understood. Human flourishing is possible if we lay our humanity bare, bare and true. We. Like Harriet Tubman, must wrestle against the geography of fear and intellectual captivity, because it does us deep harm and danger. We, like Frederick Douglass, must turn around and grab that whip of oppression and put hopelessness in its place. We together must remain alert, engaged, and ready to do what we need to do to transcend and transform how black bodies are perceived as they move through the time and space of this America that we are compelled to still create. Thank you.